Hi, this is Alan Ruff, the Thursday host of A Public Affair. If you have a moment and the, the resources, remember to support the station. And if you will, head over to wrtfm.org to donate and to see what else is going on at the station. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. And good afternoon. Welcome to this, the Thursday edition of A Public Affair. I'm your host for this hour. My name is Alan Ruff. Our guest today is Matthew Dalek, a U.S. political historian and professor at George Washington University's Graduate School of Political Management. In addition to his scholarly and academic work, Professor Dalek also is a frequent public commentator on politics, history, and public affairs. His articles and reviews have appeared in the Washington Post, Politico, The Atlantic, Perspectives, and numerous other publications. His commentaries have been aired on NPR, CNN International, MSNBC, and elsewhere. Matt Dalek is joining us to discuss his recent work, Birchers, How the John Birch Society Radicalized the American Right, an examination of that far-right organization of the 1960s and 70s, the ideas and tactics it put forward, the broad, broader movement it spawned, and its late lasting influence in shaping the country's political and ideological terrain down to the present. Not just the history of the organization, the book recounts how the Birch Society in the long run remade American conservatism and thereby still affects our contemporary politics and much more. Uh, Matt Dalek, welcome to WORT. Thank you so much for having me, Alan. You know, Matt, perhaps it would be best to frame the discussion somewhat. Give our listeners some brief idea, a word sketch, if you will, of what you set out to do in Birchers. Well, like a lot of historians, I was uh, interested in uh, how we got to Trump, how the Republican Party got to Trump, and why so many conservatives seem to become supporters of the MAGA movement. Um, so what I set out to do is to tell in large part a history of an organization on its own terms, this mass uh, 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 grassroots group from the 1960s and 70s. But I also wanted to uh, bring it up to the present and look at the afterlife of the John Birch Society. So look essentially in some detail at how the society bequeathed a set of ideas to its successors and forged an alternative political tradition on the far right that uh, uh, successors uh, to the movement could pick up and use uh, in their efforts to gain power in the United States. So what was the John Birch Society? How did it come about? What were its origins? Well, it was formed in December 1958 at a, a secretive meeting in Indianapolis. And its founder was a guy named Robert Welch, who was a, a candy manufacturer. Um, and uh, they sold pom-poms and, and junior mints uh, and things like that. Sugar daddies. Uh, sugar daddies, yep, yep. Uh, and, and he was very wealthy. Um, and there were a number of his colleagues from the National Association of Manufacturers whom he knew. Uh, he was a, a, a staunch anti-communist. And in December of 58, he gathered together 12 men, including himself, all men. And uh, he formed the John Burr Society in order to root out and attempt to destroy essentially what he argued and what the, the founding fathers agreed was a communist conspiracy within the United States, that the country internally had essentially been overrun by communist sympathizers, communist ideas, and Welch and his colleagues wanted to create a mass education campaign, educating the public about this threat. Um, it, it, uh, we can talk more about how it expanded, but it ultimately became about 60 to 100,000 members 
in chapters scattered all over the country, including many chapters in Wisconsin, which had a very robust uh, birch presence. And uh, and they did all sorts of activities, which we can also discuss. Talk about the class backgrounds and status of, of these early players. Who were some of the individuals involved? Well, uh, the early players, uh, the 12 founders, were almost uniformly Christian, uh, white uh, men, and very wealthy. Uh, most of them were businessmen, although not everyone. Uh, Fred Koch is probably the most famous uh, founder or member of the, the founding group. Um, and they tended to be industrialists. They worked in uh, uh, areas uh, like uh, manufacturing paper or um, or found iron iron foundry, ironworks, like uh, uh, Bill uh, Grady, who is a, a Wisconsin and Milwaukee-based uh, uh, manufacturer. And, um, and initially, they just wanted to recruit their friends. They wanted to recruit people who were like them who thought like them um and uh and they started to kind of bring in uh fellow really elites uh to um join the movement to fund it and to uh try to press this cause of rooting out what they saw as the communist conspiracy from american soil you referenced the national association of manufacturers a number of this initial group, as you mentioned, including Welch, were members, even board members of the NAM. Talk about that a second. That is, what was the NAM? It has an older, longer history in the 20th century. Yeah, well, um, the National Association of Manufacturers was the largest, I think, the largest uh, industrial lobbying organization in the country. And they represented both large industrial concerns, but also smaller ones. Um, and uh, and it's so interesting because this group, the John Birch Society, that would come to be seen as really the emblem of far-right radicalism, um, many of the, uh, actually three of the 12 founders were uh, former presidents of the, of the NAM. Um, and the NAM seems to be kind of all-American, at least on the surface, right? Not radical at all. Um, with a, a sort of business agenda um, and uh, and not necessarily hostile to the welfare state, but there was an ultra conservative faction within NAM. And Welch, Robert Welch, the Birch founder, was able to use his perch at NAM to speak to his colleagues and give lectures around the country about the communist threat within the United States, the sort of creeping collectivism within the country. And so it gave him and the other founders a network and not just a personal network, but an ideological network. So a way that they could forge their ideas uh, and and kind of hash them out. And in that sense, it was a, a sort of proving ground uh, for the Birch Society. And, uh, and there were splits within the NAM, but this was a kind of ultra conservative faction within it. And, uh, and it flowed in some ways uh, into the creation of the Birch Society. And, and of course, the, the NAM, part of its operant ideology was that it was totally anti-organized labor, uh, anti-regulation, et cetera. Um, again, I remember it from my study of early 20th century uh, history as being uh, opposed to the AFL, for instance. Yeah, well, so my sense is, and actually there's there are books written about the NAM, but my sense is that the NAM did have some divisions uh, within it, and that there were some people, members of NAM, uh, some manufacturers who supported Dwight D. Eisenhower and Eisenhower Republicans. Um, but then there were others, as you said, who were more hardline. And so um, there's a guy named Bill Grady, who I mentioned from Wisconsin. Uh, he was really a hero to many on the right and the far right because he was deadly opposed to unions. And he was seen as basically a, 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 a deeply anti-union and very effective at, at bashing unions. Um, and, and there was a group that you know, believe that that taxes were essentially a form of socialism, 
They opposed all regulations. But again, this was not necessarily a consensus within NAM. And frankly, there was some, I think, unhappiness among these ultra-conservatives within NAM because they didn't want NAM to accommodate the welfare state, the New Deal. Um, the Birch members believe that essentially the New Deal should be obliterated. It should be eliminated, right? It should be rolled back to the gov federal government, should be rolled back to a pre-New Deal era. And, uh, and so, um, you know, the Birchers in some respects could be uh, a seen as, um, you know, an organization flowing out of NAM, but an organization that these ultra conservatives wanted. You know, before we get too far along, Tell, tell our listeners, acquaint our listeners with who J John Birch was, the namesake of the organization. Yeah, so John Birch was an evangelist turned army intelligence officer who was in China in World War II. He was with the Flying uh, uh, Tigers, a, a, a famous uh, uh, flying group. And um, he was uh, killed. 10 days after World War II by Mao's uh, uh, communist forces, Mao Zedong's communist forces. And he almost certainly would have, his name would have almost certainly been lost to history. Um, but Robert Welch, I mean, it's a longer story, but Robert Welch basically wrote a book in the mid-1950s, a short biography of John Birch, and arguing that Birch was not just the first victim of World War III, um, but that the federal government, the State Department, other elements of the government had conspired to cover up his murder, that the communists had murdered him and communist sympathizers, sympathizers within the American government had uh, orchestrated a cover up. And uh, you can see why then John Birch would become a martyr uh, for members of the Birch Society, right? A kind of a hero who died and then his own government was essentially uh, sweeping his murder under the rug to do the bidding of the communists. Matt Dalek, you, you tell us that in that the early members were of, of the Birch Society were not the mainstream right, that their ideas were distinctive. Talk about those ideas, the main elements of the Bir Bircher belief system. Of course, you've already touched on some of them. Yeah, what, what I argue is that they were distinct from mainstream conservatives uh, because at the heart of the organization was a more explicit racism, uh, uh, an anti-establishment, more violent and apocalyptic mode of politics. They tended to be anti-interventionist and isolationist in many respects because they believed that the whole post-World War II international order was corrupt. They wanted to get the U.S. out of the United Nations, for example, which they, they thought was a, a socialist uh, group. Um, they wanted to repeal the New Deal. Uh, and, um, uh, and they were early uh, on to the culture wars. Uh, they had a kind of uh, vision of imposing uh, their views of Christian morality on civic institutions like public schools and libraries. Um, so that was, those were some of the, and, and of course, conspiracy theories was an important one as well. So I argued that all of these ideas, um, even though there was overlap at times, that these ideas distinguished the Birchers and the far right uh, from uh, 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 more mainstream conservatives like Ronald Reagan and Richard Nixon and Gerald Ford. Talk about the anti-Semitism that runs through the organization. You touched about the group as founded by and, and dominated by white uh, Christians. Talk about the anti-Semitism. Yeah, well, look, at the time in the 1960s, there were a number of critics who said the Birch Society was anti-Semitic or they harbored anti-Semites and racists. And the Birch Society always maintained, and they do to this day, that these charges were bogus, right? That they were communist inspired. And they pointed to uh, a couple of things. One is that they, they said, we admit any person to our group, right? They just have to be religious, but anyone is allowed to join as long as they're religious and of good character. 
And they said, look, we have a we have some Jewish members in our group to prove that we're not anti-Semitic. And it's true, they did have a handful, I think, of, of Jewish birchers. Um, at times as well, the Birch Society, to be fair, did try to police their ranks of anti-Semites. So I found a, a memo in which um, some anti-Semite, a Birch member, had written to headquarters talking about the Jewish plot against America, that at the root of the communist conspiracy was one evil, Jews, as this anti-Semitic member said. And at headquarters, they wrote on this memo, is this guy anti-Semitic or what? And then someone else wrote, he's a wild man, drop him. So there were some attempts to bar anti-Semites, but, but what I found, and I have a lot of doc, I document this in the book, is that the anti-Semitism leaked out from below the grassroots and also from the top. And that the conspiracy theories and other elements of the group attracted so, a number of anti-Semites and that it was really impossible for the Birch Society to police itself and that it also drew energy from anti-Semites. Uh, and so um, it was not just at the grassroots, there were also leaders who gave uh, anti-Semitic uh, uh, speeches. And it really was um, an important element of the movement. And I, I, I think I, you know, I think I try to demonstrate that case in the book. You're listening to political historian Matthew Dalek, professor at George Washington University. We're discussing his recent book, Birchers, How the John Birch Society Radicalized the American Right. Per usual, we'll be opening up the phone lines at half past the hour. If you want to join in the conversation, have a question or a comment for Matt Dalek today, give us a call at 608-256-2001. Another element that I found very interesting, because they're so worried about authoritarianism from, you know, communists and so on, is the anti-democratic nature of the organization. That is, it's a, they, they're very clear in saying, we don't live in a democracy, we live in a, a republic. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, it's so interesting. So they had that slogan, right? We're, we're a republic, not a democracy. Let's keep it that way. Well, what did that mean? Um, I think it meant different things to different people. For some Birchers, it meant that um, we live in a Christian America and that Christian values, uh, fundamentalist kind of Christian values should prevail as they did uh, at the founding. To others, as Robert Welch liked to say, democracy was a tyranny of the mob. And their fear was that the majority of the country, especially a multiracial majority, was going to trample on the rights of individuals and and the states to do basically as they please, including if they decided to segregate by race, they could segregate by race. Um, and And that you cannot, so their idea was that democracy was corrupt because it enabled the masses or the majority to run roughshod over what they perceived as their individual liberties. Um, and whether that was gun rights or again, or uh, to practice racism in their, in their places of business or worship. Um, and, and so they had a, an explicit anti-democratic bent. Um, Welch himself, uh, it was an interesting group because, you know, Welch himself uh, liked to describe himself as sort of the, the the sole authority behind the organization and that his word was essentially final. And so, you know, he held himself out in some respects as an authoritarian. And there were worries that he was a kind of, you know, proto-fascist uh, uh, aspiring leader at the time. Um, but they also formed these chapters at the local level of limited to 20 people, no more. And the chapters were supposed to take orders from the top, but often they, they you know, of course, they, they worked on local issues. They sometimes went in their own direction. There was internal fighting. Um, so 
But uh, but the other brief element I'll mention is that they set up front groups. Impeach Earl Warren, for example, a truth about uh, civil turmoil. And the front groups were designed to kind of hide the footprints of the Birch Society, to channel the energy of Birchers into a single cause, support your local police, and to get the Birchers to go out into the streets or into uh, their communities to fight on behalf of these uh, 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 causes. And um, and without really knowing, you know, who was behind it, right? And who was funding it, who was supporting it. Still with us today. <clears throat> go back yeah. first. Go back for a second about this, the limit on chapter size, the 20 member uh, chapters all over the place, all over the map. Why was that? Well, look, there was a, first of all, there was a very a secretive quality about the Birchers. They like to say, oh, we're not secretive, but you know, the chapters had names, not names, they had um, in uh, a nondescript letters or numbers. So QBCE, I mean, I'm making that up, but basically, you know, nonsensical letters. And the idea, I think, was that, first of all, they didn't expose their members, right? They don't want the communists, as they saw them, to get hold of the names of the members. So they don't want their their members to be attacked by communists, whether the communists in the media or academics or whoever their enemies at the time were. Um, the other piece, though, is that, uh, you know, with 20 person members, um, Welch, the theory was that Welch could then have the headquarters could have control over the organization. The chapters were not supposed to talk to one another. They were not supposed to coordinate. Uh, the hope was that they would not then get into conflicts and that everything could kind of flow out of the headquarters, which was in Belmont, Massachusetts, for most of the uh, uh, life of the group. And um, and that, you know, it was a way, I think, of of both hiding the group's footprints and um, and also giving the Birchers a kind of shock force at the local level that they could use uh, without really getting too large and too visible a target for the enemy. You describe um, the society, <clears throat> described the society's fresh approach to political mobilization. Talk about, about that some, the elements of that. Well, I've, I've already, I think, hit on some of them. So one is uh, the idea of setting up these front groups. The other, though, is that um, they were going to win by losing. So a lot of these campaigns, Impeacher or Warren's one example, the Birchers understood that they were not probably going to actually impeach the chief justice of the Supreme Court, who was a popular, if not revered figure at the time. Um, but they would draw attention to their cause. They would rile up their opponents. They would get people to respond to their their issues, right? Their messages. And as Welch liked to put it, they would let the enemy know that we were there, right? And so the enemy would have to deal with, you know, these, as they, they describe themselves as true patriots, true Americanists. Um, and I'm sure we can go back before the 1960s and find plenty of, of groups who also adopted this. Um, the other element, though, which I think was of a piece with other conservatives, other far right uh, activists, but their Birchers were also innovative, which is just creating this alternative media space. The Birchers had uh, all kinds of publications. They had recommended book lists. They set up libraries, uh, which one historian actually described as coffee houses of the left. And Birch members could go to these libraries. Coffee houses of the right. Coffee houses of the right. Sorry, coffee houses to the right, but they were like, well, but yes, but they were like coffee houses for the left, I should have said. But yes, and that I think is a good, it's a nice analogy um, because members would go to the bookstores and they could have conversations. They could see the latest books that had come out, books like None Dare Call It Treason, right? Uh, and uh, other conspiratorial tones. So they were innovative, I think, in all these different levels. Again, they're not the only group innovating in this way, but but one of the more prominent ones. And it's one of the reasons why I argue that they were actually quite successful 
at pushing their ideas into the bloodstream of the body politic, even if their ideas were considered fringe, radical, and and were not popular at the time. They were still part of the, the public debate. You, you referenced the basically the infrastructure they created. Um, talk about, on an operational level, the value uh, and their focus on, <clears throat> excuse me, on direct, direct action, direct intervention. Yeah, well, so the, the Birchers viewed the two-party political system, um, they viewed both political parties as uh, a corrupt and captured by communists. So Dwight Eisenhower, uh, Robert Welch once charged, was a, an agent of the communist conspiracy. So um, they decided that they were going to form um, a group aimed at teaching the public, teaching the American people about the communist threat within, because they believed it was only by tutoring, educating the people that they could save the country in time. Uh, and it was an interesting model. Now, they did get involved in electoral politics. They, there were a, a handful of Birchers uh, members who ran for Congress or uh, for state seats, uh, state legislative seats. Uh, some Birch members took over uh, PTAs and school boards. Uh, and um, But there was also a sense that they needed to picket, uh, picket people like Earl Warren, John Kennedy. They need to take out advertisements uh, uh, shocking people into seeing events, seeing, say, the assassination of John Kennedy as the work of a communist conspiracy. They needed to get their message out to the public by targeting their enemies as socialists, communists, and pinkos, which is how they labeled one allied to Richard Nixon in early 60s California, who was running, she was running for a California Republican Party county seat. So, you know, you can get a sense of how they, um, they view direct action, even things like writing postcards to the United Nations about a conspiracy theory that they had, uh, um, as a way of trying to pressure, um, organizations and individuals to to take their side, but more importantly, to try to rally other Americans to their cause. And again, to try to push their issues, get the media to cover them in a way uh, and um, and to make their presence known, to make their ideas known. And in that sense, they were actually quite, quite effective. And, and the argument in the book, one of the arguments is that a small, relatively small group of people can who are dedicated to a cause and give their time, money, and really devotion ha, can have an outsized impact, can have an impact that is far greater potentially than even millions of voters. And I think the Birch Society uh, had that kind of impact. Throughout the book, you allude to a, a rhetorical thread of violence running through all, all of this material. Can, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Um, well, not just Robert Welch, although he was the, the leader and the founder, but many Birch members viewed themselves in an existential struggle, right? This was a, this was a struggle to the death, and it was not a struggle, a war to the death against Soviet communism, although Soviet Russia was clearly uh, 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 seen as a threat, but it was a struggle against, against Americans, right, who had turned, they said, against their country, who had embraced a Soviet uh, a way of life, Soviet ideas. So Welch, uh, for example, would talk about, you know, Birchers as members, basically as spears that were being hurled against the communist line. Um, he would talk about... Uh, Birch members needing to have courage that was greater than any soldier on an on a battlefield, right? In in combat, in order to fight the communist conspiracy that was trying to destroy the family and trying to destroy religion and destroy the United States. Um, 
the the rhetoric was basically that this was a kind of World War III, but an internal war. And so in 1974, actually, the uh, uh, leading African-American spokesperson for the Birch Society um, actually uh, uh, told a, a Birch rally that um, Nixon and Kissinger, Fulbright, you know, mainstream politicians, Republicans and Democrats, had imposed a planned shortage of consumer goods on the country, that they had orchestrated this conspiracy to deprive Americans of consumer goods, and that when the Birchers finally took power, they were going to try Nixon, Kissinger, and others for treason. And then this spokesman, spokesman said, and uh, he said, and they'll be hanged, right? We're going to try and convict them, and then we're going to hang them. And he said, news media, take that message to the American people and tell them that the Americans are coming. And so you get a sense of the violent violence really uh, in the language that uh, was also central to their mobilization. Very analogous to the contemporary scene of the MAGA Trumpist uh, threats that, that permeate the political culture. Well, you know, it's interesting. I mean, as I'm talking, um, it does feel like, you know, we're talking about the past, but the past is not past, right? The past also feels very present. And, you know, of course, you know, you don't want to do a one-to-one, -one, you know, the Birchers are, you know, now like they've just been transported, you know, magically to MAGA. Um, but what I argue is that the ideas and style of the far right has remained. The, the Birch Society helped to forge that tradition. Um, and that the tradition is the one in which Trump and MAGA operates. It's the kind of apocalyptic and violent language that they use. It's the view of the of the state, the federal government as not just a leviathan, but um, but an enemy within. Uh, and uh, it's a conspiracy theories, right? It's a whole range of of ideas. And and in that sense, it does. Um, feel very contemporary, and it's why I wanted to bring the, the book up to the present. Again, you're listening to political historian Matthew Dalek. We're talking about Birchers, how the John Birch Society radicalized the American right. <clears throat> Excuse me. If you want to join us with a question, a comment, an observation, give us a call at 608-256-2001. Oh, Chuck tells me we, speaking of the devil... Chuck tells me we have a caller. Hello, caller. You're on the air. I assume that's me. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, so I'm curious about the city of Indianapolis since the Birch Society began there. That's where Charles Manson came from. That's where Jim Jones came from. And, of course, Mike Pence also had a famous lynching there in the early 1900s. Oh, I mean, early 20th century. And so it, I think it's kind of a hotbed of crackpot Christianity, and I'm wondering how much that milieu had to do with not just the Birch Society, but you know things that emanate from there. Thank uh, you, caller. Other ways. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. So it's an interesting question. Um, there is a, a fairly straightforward explanation for why the group was founded in Indianapolis, and that is that a woman named Marguerite Dice. Uh, who was a minute woman, a member of a group uh, in the early and, and mid-1950s that was fairly McCarthyite, that viewed, for example, the American Civil Liberties Union as a communist uh, uh, organization that protested, you know, alleged communists within the United States. Marguerite Dice uh, offered her home to Robert Welch and uh and offered to host him over these two days of meetings so that was you know one kind of practical reason and, and that welch felt like she could be trusted because uh he did not want word of this movement getting out uh to anyone and uh and actually told the founders who were coming to indianapolis he told them do not coordinate your hotels and if anyone asks you just say you were there on business because he didn't want the enemies to get wind of what, what they were up to. But the other aspect, I think, is that um, 
you know, it was centrally located, not just in the middle of the country, but the Midwest was really uh, an important, um, an under-recognized but important bulwark for the Birch Society. Uh, the Birchers would in time come to have a robust presence in Wisconsin, uh, uh, Indiana, uh, Illinois, uh, and uh, uh, I think Ohio, you know, a number of, a number of places in the Midwest. And, uh, and a number, I think half of the 12 founders actually came from the Midwest, including people like uh, Fred Koch from uh, Wichita and uh, Bill Grady from, uh, uh, from Wisconsin. So, you know, there were a number of, of factors that kind of made Indianapolis the, uh, the hotspot. But there, there was, I think, as the caller suggests, a tradition of, um, or at least uh, elements, right, of, of far-right uh, uh, politics in, in the city. And, and Marguerite Dice was there to kind of host and sustain uh, this movement. Speaking of uh, Marguerite Dice, you devote an important chapter of the book to the significant role of women in the organization, in this top-down, male-dominated organization, that in some areas and around some issues, women came to make up a majority of the activist supporters and sometimes shock troops. Go into that some. Yeah. You know, it's it's interesting because when I started researching the book, you know, you never really know what you're going to find. Um, but as I got deeper into it, uh, what struck me is the energy and the activism uh, of uh, of women at the grassroots in the chapters. And as one, I think, Birch member said, um, women had the time <laughs> and uh, and they they wanted to be active in a cause. Now, women had, of course, you know, long played an important role at the grassroots level and things like the Ku Klux Klan of, of the 1920s. And there have been a number of really good historians who have written really good books about women and and modern conservatism. Um, but in the 60s, women in particular, I think, saw themselves as educators, right, as teachers to the country about this communist conspiracy. They um, uh, they wanted to impose a kind of early 20th century vision of morality and culture, right, of gender roles, of uh, uh, banning sex education in the schools, uh, those kinds of issues. And at the same time, I think they took advantage, in a sense, of uh, the second wave of feminism, when women were coming more, uh, uh, it was becoming more accepted for women to uh, go into the workplace, but also into politics. And I think the Birch women, the, the contradiction or the paradox within the movement, in a sense, is that they uh, benefited from the liberalization of the of the culture at the same time that they were arguing for a return to a more traditional kind of um, a pre-World War One notion of gender roles, sexual uh, uh, mores and uh, and just cultural practices. In, a, in some sense, anti-feminist feminism. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it yes, you know. They, they drew from both both elements, I think, to some extent. You talk about how the period from its origins in, 19, in at the end of 1958 up through 1974, that the Birch Society evolved into a mass movement. <clears throat> but it simultaneously began to shrivel as an organization during the late 60s and early 70s. Talk about some of the factors that got that underway, the that retraction or uh, yeah. re reduction of its uh, strength. Yeah. So I, you know, this is, I think, an interesting part of this story, which is um, how does this, you know, major far right movement uh, atrophy, right? It never dies. The Birch Society exists to this day. It's in Appleton, Wisconsin, its headquarters. What I argue, though, is that um, institutions uh, uh, democratic institutions, small d democratic institutions, both political parties, uh, the federal government, um, the mass media, uh, a lot of um, uh, groups 
civic uh, uh, organizations and and uh, other groups like the NAACP, the Anti Defamation League, um, a, a union unions and union backed organizations that they have an external pressure, you know, or check on the birchers, and that over time they were able to really not just define, but embed into the culture of the idea that the Birchers were French and that you did not want to be associated with them. And that in some ways it was almost uh, uglier to be seen in public life as a member of the Birch Society than it was to be tarred a segregationist. Uh, and, and I think that those institutions, as imperfect as they were, did have an effect at pushing back the organization. Um, and, and then the other thing is that uh, there was an internal factor as well, which was our dynamic. And that was that, you know, because they floated conspiracy theories, they attracted, as the years went on, more and more bigots and radicals, some of whom were violent to the ranks. So by the late 60s, what you see are more examples in the society of internal strife, uh, more anti-Semites and, and racists. Uh, you see kind of more hints of violence within the organization, or at least threats of violence hanging around it. Um, and you see the group essentially radicalizing even more and more. And um, and it became a kind of gateway for a lot of uh, uh, people who went on to even more violent pastures, so to speak, on, in even more racist and anti-Semitic groups. So it imploded in a sense, right? It sort of burned itself out because it was so uh, a radical. And I think that that those factors, you know, broadly defined, like help to explain its demise as an organization. Just as as the organization was <clears throat> withering or atrophying, as you, you use the term, um, Birch ideas, tactics, and strategies found a new life in the political culture as the nation emerged from the 60s, early 70s. Uh, and that that's the bridge that takes us to the present, I believe. Yeah, yeah, that's, um, yeah, that's a, a, a great way to put it. Um, so what I argue, and, and I have several chapters at the end of the book in which I try to make this case, is that even as a society fades as an organization, and it becomes a kind of laughing stock for most Americans. Its ideas live on and its tactics live on. And that those ideas and tactics get adapted uh, by subsequent groups and individuals who are even savvier politically. Um, so groups like the moral majority, right? Christian uh, of fundamentalism, uh, Pat Robertson and the Christian uh, coalition. The NRA as a National Rifle Association becomes a much more radical far right group, the kind of group that we know today. Um, uh, some elements of the libertarian movement, people like Ron Paul uh, with conspiracy theories and, and views of the federal government and public health, for example. So uh, what I argue is that these ideas are sustained through the decades and that Republican conservative leaders, because mostly conservatives are in charge of the Republican Party after really 19, 1964, um, that Republican conservative uh, leaders, that in campaigns, they give Birch successors, they give the far right a home. They appeal to their issues, they you know welcome their support, their money, uh, and uh, and they 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 put together a coalition. But I also argue that the far right is frustrated over time because these conservatives, like the George Bush, you know, Bush one and two, they don't actually govern in a way. They govern in a way that frustrates the fringe's most insistent demands, and that that dynamic takes hold. If if that makes sense, um, until the fringe starts to engulf the center, the mainstream right in uh really around 2008-2010 yeah that that whole notion of the fringe moving to the center basically taking over the broader movement uh, i think is essential for uh well to your central argument 
Yeah, and and also, you know, it, it I think hopefully addresses whether people agree with my argument or not. It does speak to, I think, one of the central dilemmas in modern American politics, namely the the radicalization of one of our country's two major political parties, the embrace of conspiracy theories, the the anti-democratic bent uh, of of the party, the election denialism, uh, the the hardline kind of culture wars that we see, you know, the war on LGBTQ rights and and transgender uh, individuals, uh, and and it 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 tries to explain at least in part, how did we end up where one of the party has become quite radical, at least its dominant forces. And, and there are some, clearly some Republicans as well who, who reject that, who are sort of more mainstream, but they're, they're not, no longer the majority. We're moving toward the end of the hour, but we do have a caller with a question. Steve, hello, Steve, you're on the air. Yes, uh, Matt, by the mid-50s, the American public was revolted by the McCarthyite excesses of paranoid anti-communism, yet so soon afterwards the Birch Society arose. Help me understand this seeming irony. Uh, Also, were the original Dirty Dozen founders directly connected to the early 50s China lobby? Thank you. Mm. Yeah, those are both really interesting questions. Um, So the Birch Society forms at a curious time, right? This is not um, the late 1940s or early 1950s at the really the onset of the Cold War. And it's not at the height of McCarthyism. But to put it into context, Robert Welch and many of the other founders saw Joe McCarthy as a hero. And they believe that McCarthy, but also Robert Taft, the Ohio senator uh, uh, who was you know of their ilk, um, Taft was dead by then, right? He had been, and he had been deprived of the Republican presidential nomination in the earlier 1950s. And McCarthy had been pushed out and then uh, was also dead by 1958. So two of their heroes were gone. And who was going to pick up the mantle, right? Who was going to continue their legacy? And, And so I think Welch very shrewdly and his other founders sense this void uh, on the far right and decided that it was time for for a new movement to pick up the slack and to fill that hole. Um, so, uh, you know, it's uh, it and also I would also say after six or seven years of Dwight Eisenhower being president, they had essentially given up on the Republican Party or at least saw the Republican Party as so corrupt that they needed to form their own movement. Uh, and, and so those elements, I think, came to pass in 58. On the China lobby, um, yeah, there were some, there was some overlap. Uh, there were some, um, I think, people who financed the, right, the effort to um, support Taiwan uh, and, or, or Formosa, and to really uh, focus on you know, opposition to communist China uh, and to also expose, you know, the alleged communists in the United States government who lost China to communism, right? Blaming the State Department for losing, uh, uh, letting China go communist. Um, there were some leaders of of that, and Robert Welch was also very interested in those uh, uh, ideas, those politics. He actually traveled to uh, to Asia, uh, and um, uh, very much reflected that. So. You know, it was certainly of a piece with both McCarthyism, excuse me, and uh, and of you know members of the um, of the China lobby. And I think that many of the Berkshires saw that they were both a new force for a new age, but also that they were inheriting and adapting and advancing the mantle of both the China lobby and McCarthyism. You talk. <clears throat> we've talked a little bit about. Um the continuity of ideas and, and the worldview. Talk about the continuity the, the, across time of the or, organizational techniques that the Birchers developed. Yeah, well, one of the things that, uh, well, a couple things. Uh, one is that they use conspiracies to organize. 
They understood that conspiracy theories, um, totally bogus conspiracy theories, but conspiracy theories could be a way to motivate some Americans to get active in the struggle for power because they could, these theories could define the enemy as being within the neighborhood or within the city, uh, within your community. And, uh, and that was a very effective, I think, uh, uh, mobilization and organizational tool. Um, local control, right? Thinking about civic institutions that had not been seen as political or partisan, taking over those organizations like the PTA, uh, the uh, uh, school boards, um, uh, ensuring that, quote, Americanist texts, patriotic texts were, were displayed in libraries, lobbying, as I said earlier, to ban communist or allegedly socialistic teachings like sex, sex education in the schools. Um, so that those local, you know, you think about Moms for Liberty today, and the book bans that they're putting in place in, in, in Florida and elsewhere. Um, well, the Birchers also uh, uh, were very active on that uh, on those issues and uh, and really had that insight that you could organize at the local level and in places where, you know, they weren't seen as very political, but you could make them so and you could kind of inject and, and actually gain power uh, at the local level. And that was a, another powerful organizational tool. And then the last quick thing I'll say is, as I said earlier, the front groups, um, you know, the idea that you have groups, they sound, you know, a little uh, antiseptic or anodyne, you know, support your local police, right? It sounds pretty bland. Well, what's behind that? What do they stand for? Um, and, uh, and well, today, you know, you have things like Americans for Prosperity. Well, who's not for prosperity? Of course you are. But who's funding it? You know, who is uh, supporting it? What's their agenda? Um, so, you know, dark money, so to speak, right? Um, they, were, they were early on in a different context to those kinds of organizational uh, uh, techniques as well. Matthew Dalek, unfortunately, we're right down getting toward the end of the hour. Some final words for our listeners. You can plug the book even. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you know, it would be great if uh, people uh, went out and, and bought the book, uh, audio book, whatever. Uh, it's... Um, you know, I've, I've heard from a lot of people who have, you know, read the book. Maybe they knew something about the Birchers or nothing about them, uh, but it's resonated with them. And they've they've reacted in really interesting ways, saying that, you know, it feels very contemporary. And so, uh, again, the, the past is kind of new. What's old is new again. Well, I want to thank you ever so much for joining with us for the hour. Uh, you've been listening to Matthew Dalek, U.S. Uh, political historian at George Washington University's Graduate School of Political Management. Check out his book. I did, and it's well worth the read. Birchers, How the John Birch, Birch Society Radicalized the American Right. Again, I also want to thank Chuck uh, for engineering today and, and Jade for helping out, as always, in production. And I've been your host for this hour. My name is Alan Ruff, and I'll be speaking with you next week. WORT 89.9 FM, Madison.